So we've been in a series in the book of Daniel, and we're going to just jump right back in there. So why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. If you guys don't have Bibles, uh, we have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. You can raise your hand. They would be happy to get you a Bible. Um, We're going to be basically just looking at the very last section of Daniel, chapter 2. We have been kind of making our way. In some weeks, we cover large swaths of uh, scripture. Other weeks, not, not so much, and this is one of those other weeks where not so much, um, but we'll get through the end of the chapter, and then we will begin to make way for a really well-known, recognized chapters, you know, oftentimes the, the, the stuff that, you know, children's ministry vibe is oftentimes made out of, it's like uh, the three guys walking through the fire, you, you, you're all familiar with that story, if not, you, you'll get it next week, um, but what I want to do right now is I want to just simply read the passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work, so if, would you guys mind just standing one more time? as we read scripture, and then um, I'll pray, and then we'll get to work looking at this. But Daniel chapter 2, we'll pick it up about verse 46. It says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, and he paid homage to Daniel. So just real quick, give give me like 30 seconds to give a little quick backstory. Uh, The people of Israel were taken captive by the world militaristic superpower called Babylon, and uh, Daniel was the main character in the story. Here's three other guys that are his good friends that are also part of the story. They're called um, um, soothsayers or seers. They're dream interpreters, in other words. And they were on the king's payroll. And the king had a very, very large payroll of people that were, were part of this dream reading like deal. And um, the king has a really bad dream. Uh, he's freaked out. He calls out people around his kingdom to kind of figure out what his dream was. Nobody can tell him what his dream was. Uh, because uh, nobody knew what their dream was, and so, um, except Daniel. Daniel comes, and he tells the king, here's what his dream was, and here's what his dream meant, and the king's absolutely blown away by the dream. If you missed that last week, you can pick that up, and uh, so, so now the king is filled with a sense of honor and respect and thankfulness and gratitude, and that's where we enter back in the story. So again, uh, verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, and he paid homage to Daniel, and he commanded that an offering of incense be made and offered up to him. So imagine the king. He's literally the, the Lord of lords or the king of kings upon the planet. Um, he's the highest in his class, top of the food chain. Um, he is on his face, like literally in the, in the Chaldean language. He's worshiping Daniel, and he's, he's killing animals in front of him, offering them as sacrifices. Um, uh, my guess would be that Daniel probably objected. It's not stated here explicitly, but... He's a good Jew, so were assumptions were that. Verse 47, then the king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and he made him ruler of the entire province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three other friends, three other main characters in the story, over the affairs of the entire province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So there's the story. This is the word of God. So God, we ask you right now that you would uh, speak to us uh, your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts, teach us to follow and to learn your ways. Uh, At the same time, God, uh, help us to unlearn the ways that we've been discipled in uh, six days throughout this week as well. And to relearn, to learn anew uh, what it means to truly follow you as our king. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you guys all grab a seat. Um, the subject that I really want to think about today in process is what we just read. And it's the passage where the king actually gives honor to Daniel. Um, that word can also be translated um, promoted. Maybe some of your translation actually describes it as a promotion. It is definitely a promotion. So Daniel, again, like I said, goes from slave-like status uh, as being in exile, being at literally the, the bottom of the food chain, to kind of becoming part of the top of the food chain throughout the entire kingdom. So this is a radical promotion for this guy by the name of Daniel. What I wanted to do this morning is I, was, I wanted to look at basically three things. I'll kind of outline them, and we're going to go back and look at them and make some observations and statements. I want to, first of all, really try to understand by way of definition, like what, what is promotion? Why is that important? We'll take a look at some uh, secular idea or ideology of promotion. Then we'll take a look at a biblical ideology of promotion. How does, what does the Bible have to say 
about this concept of promotion. Secondly, we'll take a look at the dark side of promotion because anytime there's uh, greater weight placed upon your life, meaning you're promoted, you're given more um, you know, acknowledgement or recognition or whatever the case is, um, also comes with it somewhat of a potential heavy burden and or traps, pride or arrogance. And then finally, we'll take a look at the posture of promotion. In other words, Daniel and his buddies, they had a particular posture that is kind of chronicled for us throughout the story of the life of Daniel. And I think it's, it's worthy of note, just observing, what are, what are some of the ways by which and how which Daniel actually uh, conducted himself. And I think this is important because the way that Daniel lived his life, he lived according to wisdom. He lived in a way in which he had a posture open to wisdom, and God blessed him. God took care of him, in other words. And so with that, I want to just jump right in. We'll circle back, begin to take a look at the definition of promotion. So I want to start basically just with a little bit of a, a definition that I just kind of took from the internet. So the action of raising someone to a higher position or, or rank within an organization. That's I mean, it's pretty standard stuff. Like, that's what promotion is. But as I was thinking about this, that there's the, the concept of promotion is loaded with all sorts of innuendo and other elements that, that are really appealing to us as human beings. Um, so, for example, this is where I want to kind of break this down between or make a, make a comparison between kind of what I will describe as a secular version of promotion versus a scriptural version of promotion as to what it looks like. So, from a secular perspective, in other words, kind of a, a, a perspective that's devoid of God, um, just rank and file, our world in which we live in, how we tend to view or think about promotion or advancement or climbing the corporate ladder, however you want to think of it, um, promotion um, can also be identified with this concept of fame, meaning someone has acknowledged you, that you are becoming popular, you're being recognized, you're being given the right honor, the right place, that you feel like maybe you're due, or maybe you don't even feel like you're due, but you've been, due, but you've been given that honor. That's kind of what promotion is. But that being said, it can oftentimes be or tethered to our identity. And so with that being said, this is where I would say kind of a secular version of promotion is really, really important. So advancing or promoting or um, progress, however you want to think of it, is essential to our culture. For, I, I think for the most part, for one main reason alone, because especially from a subjective angle, um, as you are acknowledged and recognized and become famous or uh, given the proper due that you feel like is deserving to your own name, um, we also feel our, our ego being boosted. You know, we feel someone's making much of me. Like, this is awesome. Like, I find that I'm getting the raise I deserve. You know, um, I, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago that, you guys remember Monster.com? Um, some of you were probably born before Monster.com even, uh, maybe even came out. But there, there was a website a long time ago called Monster.com, and it was a place where you would go to find jobs. And they had this one little section on there where a little kid in a commercial comes up, and he's like, I want to spend my whole life being underpaid and underappreciated, you know? And the whole idea was like, like nobody wants that, so go to monster.com and you'll find the right job for you. Um, but that's, that's oftentimes the way this can play out, is we, we live our lives feeling underappreciated, underpaid, underrecognized, um, and, and we're not okay with that. Just FYI, we're not okay with that because our identity is tied to that. You, you understand this? This is why it's painful, and it's, it's not just like something that we can just go on with life. It's painful to be in a context where you think, I deserve to be recognized. I deserve to be, you know, given a raise. I deserve something. Um, and, and you're not. It, because our, our ego, our, our sense of identity, our sense of worth or value is oftentimes affixed to that context. And so it's, it's a painful situation. But again, what I want to say, that's not the only way of viewing and understanding this concept of promotion. Because... Uh, if you're a Christian here today, we have a different story in which we, we lean into and we learn from. And this is where I want to kind of bring it back to this bigger picture of a scriptural concept of promotion. And the way I would kind of uh, uh, poise this is, is in a, you know, you guys like cheesy cliches, so here you go. Uh, God blesses us so that we can, we can be a blessing. So you, you, you're, you can use that. You can, you know, put from Brian Super, even though I didn't make it up. And you can make like cheesy like uh, teacups with that on there, embroidered on there. There you go. Um, God blesses us so that we can be a blessing. Um, again, I didn't make that up. But the point of the matter is, is that this is the way in which God um, frames uh, a sense of promotion. God does something, not as an end in itself, of itself to make much of you, but that as you receive whatever it is that God's giving to you, uh, then now you become a conduit through which you pass that blessing on to others. 
Um, someone once put it this way. God blesses us. He promotes us. He gives to us. Uh, not so much so that we can increase our standard of living, but so that we can increase our standard of giving. You know, that can be financially. That can be the giving of our time, our energy, giving of our, our, our worth, our understanding, our, our, our mental um, understanding of stuff. The, the idea is that we learn to give away with what we have been given. That's why God blesses. And this is a principle that is tied to Scripture itself, and I just want to give you a couple passages for you to consider this and think about this. So next slide. Here's a couple uh, passages we see. First of all, two characters, Abraham and then David. Um, uh, Genesis chapter 12, this is the introduction of a guy by the name of Abram. His name gets changed to Abraham. It says, then the Lord said to Abram, go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. So at this point right now, we see the character being Abram or Abraham. And God doing something for Abram. God says, here's what I'm going to do for you. This is not necessarily a deal. This is God just saying, here's what I'm going to do. You have a responsibility. Your responsibility is to leave your family and to go. And as you go, you'll be going into something that I'm providing and I'm taking care of you. And verse 2, it says, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So did you catch that? So that you, so that you. That's the important element there. So God says, I'm going to bless you so that you will then be a blessing. And then God goes on to say, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And, you know, again, we, we know the fullness of this promise being realized through Jesus and blessing the whole earth and so on. But the point of the matter is, is there's a principle here that I, I think cannot be missed. Because promotion from a scriptural perspective is God doing something on our behalf. So you might ask, well, what if, what if something has not happened yet? Well, maybe it's not God. Maybe it hasn't happened yet. Maybe, there, maybe you're still kind of in the, uh, the, the metamorphosis phase, right? You're still in the cocoon being formed. Maybe you're still being prepared. Maybe you're still being readied for whatever it is that God has uh, in, in, in store. And maybe it has not happened yet because, for whatever reason, God, God knows we're not ready. You're not ready. Or whatever the circumstances are not quite ready yet. It's half-baked, in other words. Don't take it out of the oven yet. And sometimes God just allows things to continue. And so what we see in the life of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, the Lord then said, the Lord said, I took you, referring to David, from following sheep to be the ruler over my people. So who did this? This is God. Did David make himself king? No. Uh, I mean, David obviously had, had a role to do. He slayed Goliath. You're all familiar with that story. But the point of the matter is, is that God was the one that was doing this. Just because someone goes out and slays a giant doesn't automatically mean that you're going to be you know, a king. This was God's doing. But again, if you're familiar with the story of David, uh, when David was brought into this promotion, this place of blessing, of being king, um, was, was it an easy path? No, it was really tough. David spent almost a decade running for his life, um, learning how to not de de defend himself. Um, if you want to think of it this way, a, a guy wrote a really good book, a guy by the name of Gene Edwards, highly recommend it. Um, I can't even remember the name of it right now, to be honest with you. Someone said it? No? Anyways, I can't remember it. Um, but he goes through this storyline of basically describing uh, David learning how to dodge spears, because that's, that's what he had to do, right? He was working for Saul. Saul was a madman. He was the king of the time. And so David had to learn how to dodge spears really well. But again, all of this was part of the making of the man of God, uh, to prep him, to get him ready for the promotion that God had for him, that God was the one that was doing all of this. But the pathway there, the journey there was, was tough and challenging and difficult. Um, and finally, we see in the book of Psalm, Psalm uh, 75 or 7, says uh, promotion uh, does not come from the east or the west, uh, but God puts down one and he exalts another. So again, in each of these passages, who is the one that brings the promotion? It's God. God is the one that does all this. So who elevated Daniel to this state of basically having this, this incredible control and power over all of this region? It was God. God had done this. Um, God set the stage. Daniel was obedient. He had a role. There's, of course, there's, there's roles that he had, da uh, David had, um, Abraham had. But at the end of the day, this is God doing something. God is the one that does this. But again, it's not at, as an end in of itself for the one that receives a blessing, so that the one who receives a blessing then becomes a conduit through which to bring blessing to other people. And you even see this in the life of Daniel. So Daniel receives this incredible promotion immediately to say, hey, well, what about my three bros? Like, these guys need a job too. Um, can you, you know, give them high honor jobs as well? And that's exactly what happens. And not only that, 
Um, we also look at this in just a moment, but we also see that Daniel also used his place of uh, honor and privilege and recognition to also save the rest of these other guys that were on the king's payroll that failed in their job to interpret the king's dream. And the king basically had this, like, you know, death warrant out for them. Like, we're going to tear them limb from limb, and we're going to make their house into a pile of, like, dung, right? That was literally what it says. And Daniel's like, hey, don't kill those guys. Like, maybe he doesn't even really know them. And even if he did know them, they are entirely different than Daniel. They are Babylonians. They worship false gods, false deities, false entities. And, and Daniel, he's literally sticking his neck out on their behalf to save their life because he recognized with this sense of promotion and honor uh, and privilege, he was able to use this as a way to bring blessing in the lives of, of other people. So again, what I want to really just emphasize is that there is a distinction between sort of a secular version of promotion and a scriptural version of promotion. So I want to look real briefly at the dark side of promotion. So here's some things to think about. Number one is what happens if you don't get promoted, or you don't get the recognition that you're thinking? Uh, well, that can oftentimes foster entitlement, uh, which is closely linked to pride, because here's a nice little cheesy way of thinking about the word pride, but the center of pride is what? Nigh, right? How, do you like that? Some of you are like, whoa, that's so good. I'm going to blog about that. Awesome. So the, the big idea is that, is that sometimes there's this mentality that we get this feeling of like, I, I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. I've worked hard here. I've given my time, my energy, my money, my whatever it is. And, and I deserve to have a voice or to be recognized. Now, of course, in some cases, when you live in a perennial place of feeling underappreciated or undervalued and maybe the system that you're involved in just, it's just it silences you, that can feel like oppression and so on and so forth. And those, those are things that obviously take into consideration. But say, for example, again, um, is, is that not where Daniel lived? <laughs> right? I mean, he's, he's literally in the empire of oppression, right? The empire of oppression. If you want another good example of this, think about the life of uh, Joseph. Joseph, very similar parallel story. He literally was, was on the payroll of the Egyptian monarch called Pharaoh. Again, an empire of oppression. Yet, he served God faithfully. He maintained a heart that was open and a posture that was humble. And God took care of him, created opportunities, created space, created moments where he could step in and do what God called him to do, what he was good at. And when those moments happened, there were moments when Joseph thrived in those, and there are also moments where Joseph was forgotten, right? Remember one time he interprets a dream, and then he goes back to prison, and he's forgotten, utterly forgotten. And there's no sign of, like, this feeling of entitlement that oftentimes creeps in. But that can oftentimes be what happens. This is the dark side of this concept of promotion. We might look around and see other people being promoted, other people being given things that they uh, have worked hard for, maybe didn't even work for, and they got it. And we didn't get it, and we worked hard for it, we think we worked hard for it, now we're really bitter. Jealousy. Jealousy is the dark side. Um, I also think about responsibility, because with, I mean, if you actually enter into a place of greater uh, blessing, and you are promoted into something, also comes greater responsibility. And sometimes, you begin to realize, with this greater responsibility, you're like, oh my gosh, I, I was, not, was not expecting this. Let's say, for example, God uh, promoted you to being, you know, mom or dad, Right? Uh, being now the caretaker of a brand new child or getting married or whatever, now you have this whole weight of responsibility of another life to take care of. At the end of the day, it's buck stops with you. That can feel daunting. Right? That can feel this sense of overwhelmedness of like, what in the world did I get into? What you got into is God blessed you. And with blessing sometimes comes greater responsibility. With greater responsibility comes greater capacity of God's grace to come through you to accomplish his end. Again, not to make much of you, but that through you, you can make much of God and bless others. You guys following so far? How are we all doing? Good, good. All right. And then finally, another dark side of promotion is a sense of feeling superior. Like, I'm better than other people now because look what I got. And you're down there. And I'm up here. And there's a sense of superiority that which can oftentimes come. So these are just some dark sides of promotion that we can oftentimes just look over. But I think it's important for us to pause, think about them, and then move on. So thirdly, I want to finish up with some final thoughts about the posture of promotion as we look at the life of Daniel more explicitly now. So with that being said, as I look at the life of Daniel, um, I see the, the writer of Daniel um, 
wants us to know certain things about him that I think are really, really important. And we'll take a look at three of these things, but we'll start with the first one, which I think Daniel lived bicultural or biculturally. I think I typed in biculturally, and then I got rebuked by like the red two red lines uh, underneath. So I, I don't I don't know. Maybe it's a real word. Maybe not. I try to abide by what my you know embedded thing tells me. But anyways, bicultural. And what I mean by this is that Daniel had two names. We, we know this. He goes by Daniel and then Belteshazzar. Why? Uh, because, again, a little backstory to Daniel. Daniel was Jewish, which meant he was faithful and committed to Yahweh. He was Jewish, but he was also living in Babylon, which was not faithful and committed to Yahweh, which did not want Yahweh. In fact, Daniel was there for one reason, to unlearn all of his Jewishness. Remember this? This is like a couple lessons ago. The whole point in which Daniel was brought to Babylon was so that he would lose, dismantle, deconstruct his Jewishness, and then reconstruct or have reconstructed for him a Babylonian identity. And Daniel's whole mindset was like, I can't do this. God's been faithful to me. I'm part of his covenant people. I will not be unfaithful to Yahweh. And so Daniel lives within this, uh, this tension, if you would. And, and I would even go on so far to suggest we, all of you, all of us, we live in this tension. This is where we live. We, we live in America. We live as citizens of this country for the most part. We live to some degree where uh, red, white, and blue. We also live in San Luis Obispo, which is an amazing city. But this is not necessarily what we should describe as, as home. Our ultimate loyalties are not to anything other than God's kingdom. That doesn't mean that we can't necessarily have compassion or thoughtfulness or careful ideas or thinking or careful uh, concepts about other elements. But the point of the matter is, this is where Daniel found himself, is walking carefully in this fine line between Babylonian culture and the culture of, of Yahweh. So with that being said, um, as I was thinking about this, I want to I read a passage, and we'll kind of circle back to this. So um, if you can be ready, we'll go back to this uh, slide in just a second. Can you go forward real quick to the passage in Jeremiah? So Daniel, we know that would have been, he would have been familiar with the writings of this prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And if, you know, in your, in your Bibles, you got a book, entirely book called Jeremiah. This is the same guy. Jeremiah chapter 29, um, there's a famous passage in this context I'm certain all of you are, are familiar with. If you have, you know, any um, grandparent or somebody in your life and your upline in your life that, that is familiar with uh, this story, then it's the passage where it says, uh, I know my thoughts for you, says the Lord. Uh, thoughts of good, not, not evil. So, so I'm sure some of you have either seen a teacup with this somewhere or a crochet or, or, a, or a really cute, like, Thomas Kincaid painting with this, you know, the scripture on there, like somewhere, somewhere in your house, somewhere in, you know, a thrift store or whatever. But the point of the matter is all of that came from, from here. And, and the context is absolutely uh, amazing. So Daniel, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 Daniel would have been familiar with, with this letter. So this is actually a letter written by Jeremiah to the exiles. Um, Daniel would have been part of this company that would have received this. So here's what it says. This is, uh, I, mean, I would highly recommend read the entire chapter. It's really, really good. But for the sake of our time, I just want to read a couple passages. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So just pause real, real quick and think about this. Um, How did they get to Babylon? Sketch out? Why are they in Babylon? What, what divine uh, fingerprint has just been revealed to us in this passage? Why are they in Babylon? Sketch up. It, by the way, it's emboldened and underlined. Just hint, total hint. Um, God, God sent them. God sent them into exile. So again, you can look at the story and be like, well, wait a minute. I, I thought they went because Nebuchadnezzar, this horrible series of circumstances and events that took place, they had their own 9-11 that happened, their own Twin Towers fell, and, and this is all the devastating circumstances that happened. Well, apparently, according to Jeremiah, who was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, God speaks and says, I, I've sent you, which means that there's a purpose, somehow, some way, even in the midst of the most insanity, chaos in your life, th this is the hope that we have in, in God, that God looks over the sum total of the chaos of our lives, and he says, I'm in this. I'm in the mess, and, and I will make good. I'm in the midst of that chaos. And then God goes on to say to those exiles that are living in Jerusalem, because again, mind you, 
Here they are living in Babylon. They're trying to make sense of the new landscape, right? Their landscape is no longer uh, the Mediterranean Sea or Israel or, you know, the, the, the temple or any other ancient ruins throughout Israel. Their new landscape is, are these rivers uh, along this, the area of Babylon, total desert. This is the new landscape. And it's not just simply that. Their new landscape is, is devoid of any Jewish trinket. It's all ancient paganism. And again, if you're a good Jew and you're trying to make sense of this new landscape, and not only that, you don't want to be there. You are, you are forced into exile by your captors. And they're trying to make sense. What do we do? What do we do now? And Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes him and says, here's what I want you to do. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, marry, have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren, be fruitful and multiply, do not dwindle away, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Again, just in case we missed the first statement, God says it again. I have sent you, and then pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is a mind-blowing passage. Because again, I think for the most part, we would tend to think by way of our default wiring. Babylon, big world's militaristic superpower, equal enemy of Judaism, we would think that God would say, pray for curses to come down upon them. Pray for fire to consume them. Pray for, you know, swords to overtake their body. Pray for plagues to overcome the entire nation. But what God actually says is, hey, listen, you're there. I want you to build houses. I want you to find someone to marry for your kids. Get ready because you're going to be having grandkids. And I want you to be praying for the welfare of the city. I want you to invest in the city. I want you to make your home in this ancient place. And again, by the way, he makes his little statement, be fruitful and multiply. Again, which, if you're familiar with the biblical story, that comes from where? <laughs> Genesis 1, right? Pretty much everything always circles back. This is a hyperlink. Back to Genesis 1, which this is sort of a, a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. God's basically saying, hey, there's a new garden being, being built. Guess where? Babylon. <laughs> this is what God loves to do. He loves to come into dark places and say, I want to do something new. So I don't know where you're at or how you're even sinking with all this, but, or what your life is like right now. Um, I hope, if anything, that this passage would breathe hope to you to cause you to realize that no matter where you're at, no matter what type of landscape you find yourself in, no matter how you might even find your landscape being currently morphed or reshaped or terraformed, that you would be able to, in that moment, discover that God's there with you and that he wants to reshape things. And this, this is the God that we have. This is the God of creation who speaks, is be fruitful, multiply. And it's what he invites uh, Daniel and his buddies to do. So go back to the side, if you would, real quick. And I was just finished with a couple of thoughts. So with that, Daniel lived by culture. Because he lived for the city of God, God's kingdom, as we would see, he was ultimately free to live with and for the city, but ultimately not as a city. So I'll, I'll read the last little thing. Because he had a posture toward the city of God, he was free, ultimately. He was free, meaning he was able to be in the city without actually becoming Babylonian. Do you understand the difference here? So, so we live on the Central Coast. We love San Luis Obispo. It's an amazing place. I would say it's you know, one of the best places in the world to live. But it's not perfect. It's not, it's not the kingdom of, of heaven. It's close to it. It's not, it's not entirely, right? You get the idea. Um, this is not heaven. This is not a full, complete representative representation of what it looks like to live in direct relationship to Yahweh God. It's... But the point of the matter is, is that we are called to live here somewhere on the Central Coast spread out. The big question is, is how do we live? How do we maintain our identity as baptized people following Jesus, even in a culture that might not necessarily endorse or acknowledge that? So I want to move on to the very next thought as we kind of go on. Is that we see, secondly, is that Daniel sought the well-being of the city. This, again, played into the passage that he re, uh, received from Jeremiah. So what I want to think about is uh, this paradigm that we looked at a couple weeks ago, which is this paradigm of how do we respond to the city. We basically said there's three ways, two major ways, two extreme ways by which oftentimes Christians have historically uh, viewed or moved within the landscape of whatever city it is that they live in. On the one hand, you have what you could describe as separatists. 
These are people that basically pull away from society, pull away from culture. They look at culture, society, the internet, you know, stranger things, whatever it is, and they're like, this is all wicked and evil. You should never think about it, watch it, see it, whatever. Uh, don't have any interactions whatsoever with it. Go live on some vast form of acreage and raise your own chickens and dogs and goats and churn your own butter and homeschool and, you know, create your own little Christian enclave and everything's Christian there, Christian radio. You get the idea, okay? You get the point. Um, that's separatist because it has this posture that says everything in the world that is not according to our own label, idea, or tribe is somehow tainted with evil and wickedness, so therefore we will remove as much as we can. Um, so this is kind of an idea of basically saying what we will do is we will pray against the city, pray against the city, pray for it to come down, pray for evil and injustice to be uh, unveiled and unmasked, which it's not a bad prayer, but the point of the matter is, is that it's basically praying against, it's a posture that's not representative of Jeremiah 29. Um, the second of which is assimilation, or assim a, a person who's an assimilator. This is one that would perhaps never pray for the city. Maybe out of indifference, maybe out of apathy. And I would even say for this person who's an assimilator, uh, they've become just like the city. They're indistinguishable from the city. So we, we asked this question a couple weeks ago. Within our culture, in San Luis Obispo, on the Central Coast, uh, what, what are we more in danger of, uh, separating from the city or assimilating in the city? And, and I asked the question, and you guys, you don't need to answer it right now, because you all unanimously answered by saying, I think we're in danger of assimilation. I agree with that. We're in danger, I would say, and danger is not uh, an overly dramatic word, it's an accurate word, to describe we're in danger of becoming so like the city around us that we're virtually indistinguishable from it. I would say that there's a third way that is a more biblically uh, honest and faithful way, which is what we see with Daniel. And I'll just describe this one as a faithful disciple. In Daniel's case, obviously a disciple of Yahweh, as a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. And this is someone that kind of is able to navigate between praying for the city, but also serving the city. Being able to embrace certain elements of the city that are really, really good and rich and beautiful and, and play into what it means to really be human, the good elements of San Luis Obispo. And there's a lot of amazingly good elements in San Luis Obispo County, right? There's a lot of great things to embrace, to enjoy, to accept. Um, obviously, things within reason, things within moderation. Um, but the point of the matter is, we are able to, like Daniel, live in the city without becoming just like the city and without completely abandoning the city. And this requires an incredible amount of thoughtfulness. And this is part of the reason why we oftentimes fall into one of these two camps. is because it requires so much thoughtfulness and carefulness. It's just easier, right? You get the idea. It's just easier to thoughtlessly either become, you know, where's the rules of all the rules we need to follow, and now how can we abandon the city and remove ourselves from it and curse it, pray against it. It's easy to do that. It's also easy to become just like the city because we described it a few weeks ago. It's like a current, a current that's just moving. Before you even know it, that current has carried you somewhere that you did not even know it was carrying you. But it requires someone who's alive, who's thoughtful, who's careful, who's asking bigger questions. God, how do we be faithful to you in this city and to Jesus and other people in a way that's careful? But I would suggest this. Because Daniel was able to have this posture toward the city of God, meaning he recognized first and foremost his affiliation, his loyalty was to God, that he could actually not only pray for its leaders, right? Literally, he was actually praying for Nebuchadnezzar, praying for wisdom to know how to speak to Nebuchadnezzar. Then he speaks truth to power, right? So again, you get Daniel, who's standing in front of him. He's like, king, oh, by the way, this whole story and image of your dream um, at some point will come crushing down. Can you imagine saying that to a world-dominating superpower? Like, that's kind of you know, if you want to die, that's, that's like the recipe for death, right? But Daniel was able to boldly do that, probably humbly do that, because why? He recognized his place in the story. He recognized, I belong to Yahweh God. And if I die, I die. If I live, I live. God, God's, God's God. And God's the one who will take care of my life. And then we go on to see that, while also at the same time having compassion for those that are impacted by Babylonian laws. And we, we see that. Again, uh, one of the king's laws was, you know, kill everybody. And Daniel's like, 
somewhere around, I think in verse 45, he's like, hey, king, don't, don't kill those guys. So, so I was thinking about this, like there's a lot of ways in which we play this out in today's modern mindset. And I think part of the problem that we have right now in our world is we're trying to figure out how do we, how do, we do this. And I, one of my big concerns um, for us is trying to navigate faithful discipleship to Jesus in a world where we are constantly feeding off of social media, we're just listening to these echo chambers constantly go over and over and over again in our head that we feel this deep need to tribalize. Um, you know, so what we do typically is we uh, have an affinity to one side or the next, right or left, progressive, liberal, um, conservative, whatever. The, and what happens is we polarize. And, and as I was thinking about this, that's not representative of, of Jesus. It's not representative of the kingdom that we've been called to. In other words, there's a different way to live that's not within that polarized state where we're praying against the city, wishing curses down upon the evildoers that are at the top of the food chain. Nor are we just assimilating, becoming just like the rest of the city, but rather we, we live in a different way, a third way, if you want to think of it that way, the way that Daniel and his, his three buddies lived. Just thinking about this, just even today's context, right? So I'll, I'll show you a, a map. Um, some of you guys already know. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the news and stuff. But um, today, by way of an example, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, otherwise known as ICE, um, they had begun um, basically a nationwide crackdown on um, undocumented immigrants throughout the United States in, in major cities. Um, right now, this, is, this perhaps could be happening. Um, and, and why I thought this was kind of poignant for us, we, we all live in California. We're literally right smack in between San Francisco and, and L.A. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that we may know some people that might be radically impacted by this. Now, again, I don't want to get into the politics of this, so, so take a deep breath, calm down, mellow out. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to go there. But what I do want for us to just pause and think about, right? Pause and think about. Wherever you are on the spectrum of, like, we need these laws, these laws are important, I get it. Or compassion, think about the people. I, I want for us, I just want to think about a, a third way, a different way that is maybe a, a different posture that we can have in thinking about these things. Because um, on the one hand, obviously, who, who ordains law? And who ordains the, the leaders? Well, we already know that. God. God does. So how did you know, our president get into place? God's involved with this whole, this whole deal. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, even the president before him and the president before him and the president before him, that God's involved in this whole uh, mixture of stuff that we just call politics. God's involved in it somehow. Do you believe that? Or do you believe it's just left to fate? Because... Because we're not fatalists, by the way. We, we don't just leave things to fate. We don't just believe things are somehow part of this natural byproduct of the world in which we live. We believe that God somehow is, is in charge of this whole thing. And at the same time, um, there's obviously laws of the land that need to be abided by and, and upheld and so on. That's basically what's happening. But at the same time, as a follower of Jesus, like, there are families that are, are, are right now living in a, in a degree of terror. Now, again, you might argue, well, they're, they're here, illegal, and so on and so forth. But the point of the matter is, is that there's still human beings, some of which, you know, I mean, they all of which, I say, all bear the image of God. Some of which are just, you know, good, normal citizens. Of course, there's no doubt, we know this because of the documentation, that, of course, with the current immigration crisis, there are those that are slipping into the country. They've got dubious intention for America and so on and so forth without getting into conspiracy theories and all that. But the point that I want to make is this, all going back to this one big idea. As a Christian, I think we should care about these things. I really do. Because these are people made in the image of God. Maybe, maybe breaking laws, maybe not. Maybe breaking laws that you think might not, shouldn't be in the, there in the first place. Whatever. Again, this is not about that. This is just about stepping back and asking the bigger question. How do we, as followers of Jesus, live in the tension of this world, superpower, Babylonian ideology, and not assimilating into it, not becoming a separatist to it, but living as agents that bear the name of Jesus in the midst of it. And I, I think somewhere within that mixture comes this deep sense that says, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. So I, I want to pause, if you guys don't mind, I, I want to pray. I want to pray for those right now that are perhaps living in, in deep terror and just pray. I don't, I don't have a solution to this. But I, but I do know that God's in control. And I do know that God invites us to just pray for people that might be living in a deep sense of fear and worry. And, and at the same time, pray that God will give our, our current leadership and administration wisdom to know how to manage this whole situation in a way that, that is uh, representative of human life and order. So Jesus, right now we come to you. 
Uh, we don't necessarily have answers. We know you do. But God, we want to pray for those right now that are feeling this deep sense of angst and fear and worry. You are a God that repeatedly says, do not fear, do not worry. You're a God that repeatedly says, I, I, I show peace, I give grace. And so we don't, again, in some cases, we don't even really know how to pray. But what we do pray, Lord, is that you would just help there to be wisdom to be given to our government. God, areas where there may be laws that, are, um, that need new wisdom imparted into it. Jesus, we pray for our, our, our government. We pray for our leaders. We pray for those that are impacted by laws and leaders within our country. And we just pray, Jesus, would you let your kingdom come and that you will be done. That's what, we, that's what we pray for. And so we ask right now for anybody that may be feeling the, the pinch of this right now to just bring hope in the midst of it. And help us as followers of Jesus to faithfully communicate good news, gospel, and hope to those that we might have interaction with that may be directly facing these types of crises. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. Thanks, guys. Um, I want to move on to the next slide. And as I was thinking about this, so our ultimately our loyalties. This, this is another like cheesy cliche, but you're welcome. Our loyalties are not ultimately, and I didn't make this up, by the way, so if you don't like it, then it's not me. Um, our loyalties are not ultimately to, a, to an elephant or to a, uh, to a donkey, but, but to, to the lamb, to the lamb, to the lamb. As a follower of Jesus, like, that's where our ultimate loyalty lay. And so my, my encouragement to you, no matter how you lean, it's, that's fine, that's fine, but just remember where our ultimate loyalty lay. Again, I don't know how to skirt this issue. That's why I'm not. Because Daniel was right smack in the middle of this. And so as we're trying to faithfully read the scriptures, one of the reasons why we just like take books of the Bible and read through it, that we come across passages like this, we have to look at it. And you're like, oh my gosh, why are we doing this? Because the Bible's forcing us to do it, right? So don't get mad at me. Get mad at the Bible, right? So there you go. You take it up with God. But the point that I'd make is this, all right? Did you like that? It's a little passive-aggressive move right there. But the point that I would make is this, is, is that God invites us to look at our discipleship in light of all of these things and really bring it back to how do we embody this in, in this world? Because that, that's where discipleship is lived out. It's embodied. It's with people. And God calls us to love people in spite of what we think or how we think about them. And I want to wrap it up with some final thoughts. And I'm done. Okay, so going back to this last one is that we also see with regard to Daniel, he had this posture of promotion, that he maintained this readiness um, constantly. I mean, it's, again, Daniel's called upon, and immediately he's like, okay, let's pray, seek God, seek the welfare of my city, and immediately, uh, so we see he's, he's not only present, um, oftentimes people ask me, what's one of the very first steps of just being a disciple? Honestly, dude, just be present. Just show up. Just, honestly, the most simplest step in terms of discipleship, you're ready for it? Got your pen and paper ready to write this down? Just come to church weekly. I'm not kidding. Just come to church weekly. Just show up weekly. Um, and I, I know that sounds kind of silly or snarky, but it's, it is. But the point that I would make is that uh, we live in a culture where we're just really, really hyper busy. We have a lot of stuff on our agenda. I get it. And it's really easy to just not be present. So part of just discipleship is just being present, being there. And then while you're there, um, then you become aware of others. Like, what are the needs of other people around me? How, how can I slip into their life and be present and love them and pray for them and be aware of what's going on and be mindful of what's happening in their lives? And then uh, thirdly, uh, be, be humble, being humble. We see this with Daniel. There's no doubt. It's, what I mean by being humble is it's not like a false humility, like, Daniel, you're amazing. Like, praise the Lord. You know, it's all good. Like, Daniel's just like, look, like, yeah, God, God gives me the ability to interpret dreams, but it's God. <laughs> it's God. This is all God. At the end of the day, it's all God who's doing this. Yes, I may be an agent. Yes, God may have called me. Yes, God may have given me the unique ability to be able to do this. But that, that's what humility is. It's ultimately making much of God in the midst of all this. So because he had this posture toward the city of God, he maintained readiness to serve Babylon. So I'm going to wrap it up with um, just a couple other quick things. The so next slide. Um, Hebrews um, actually references this whole scenario. And there's two words that I really want you to think about in the chapter of Hebrews. It's commonly called the Hall of Faith, not the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith, um, meaning these are people that were faithful to God, full of faith, 
with regard to God. All right? So there's two words that get uh, uh, recycled a lot in this passage. Number one is the word faith, obviously. Secondly is the word commended. Uh, it's the Greek word martyrio, uh, which oftentimes can get translated as martyr. But the idea is witness. They have been given acknowledgement by God. God acknowledges them. He sees them. It's the opposite of God being blind to you. It's the opposite of going through life and feeling like and thinking this story of God never sees me. God doesn't have any clue about what I'm going through. It's the exact opposite. It's that God sees everything that you're doing and every choice that you're making to follow Jesus and being faithful to him in the midst of the challenges and hardships that you are facing, God sees. That's what we see in this story. So listen, uh, it says, many through faith conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the fire of uh, quench the power of fire. So those two little phrases that were emboldened and underlined, those are, those are winks, hyperlinks, back to the story of Daniel because chapter 3, we're going to see they're actually thrown into uh, the fire. And so this is them. Uh, the writer is basically saying, uh, here's, here's what faithfulness for them looked like. And then it goes on to say, uh, some were then tortured, refusing to accept release uh, that they might rise again to a better life. Others, they suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment, and they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. All of these were commended, and this story goes on to say, but they did not receive the fullness of the reward. But the point that I just want to emphasize is all of these, they were commended by God or promoted, acknowledged, recognized. Uh, Christopher Wright, scholar, theologian, says this, uh, great little quote. He says, it's Daniel and his friends. If you're familiar with the story that we looked at last week, this is the golden image, the head of gold representing Babylon. Uh, Christopher Wright says, Daniel and his friends, they knew that the story, they knew what story they were living in. Let's pause real quick and think about this. Do you know what story you're living in? It's one of the challenges that we have in a modern day world, which we're just like anything that's like older than 20 years, it's so old and so outdated. We live in this world where literally we've become so full of disdain towards anything that's like old, all right? Guess what's happened? We've become entirely untethered from the stories that we've inherited. We don't know who the heck we are anymore. So guess what? We go to Instagram, we go to social media, and we're trying to figure out who in the world am I. It's not working. One of the number one reasons why there's so much anxiety within the culture at large in which we live in, because we've become completely untethered from any story. Daniel knew the story he belonged to. He goes on to say they were, by necessity, living in the story of the statue, serving its head of gold, but they now knew, because of this dream, that they were living in the story of the rock, the eternal kingdom of God that would ultimately replace the earthly kingdoms. I love that image. She's saying this is the story they knew they lived in. Even though they lived in the Babylonian empire, they were not Babylonians. They belonged to God. God took care of them. And finally, I want to read a quote, because no real good sermon is not this is good, but... Uh, any sermon is not really complete without a good C.S. Lewis quote. So here you go. So quick little backstory. He's talking about the subject of glory. It's the weight of glory, and he's making this distinguishing fact between glory. Like, what, what is glory? Because there's passages in the Bible that say that one day God's going to bring us into glory. And he's wrestling with the question, like, what in the world is glory? What does that mean? He says, you know, some think of glory as being like illumination, like, like light, right? Light. But he says, you know, people don't want to, like, go throughout all eternity like an incandescent, like, light bulb. But it might involve something along with light. But he says glory, the other way I think about glory is recognition, acknowledgement. Uh, so, for example, if you go to a little child who's just done a really good job on a report or, you know, cleaned up their room and you're just like, I'm so proud of you, so thankful for you, you've done such an amazing job. If you look at that child's face, what happens? It lights up. Why? Because they're being made much of. They're coming to life. But what happens if you take that and multiply it on the scale of God? What happens when God comes into the heart of matters of human affairs and looks at you and says, I'm so proud of you. you you've had such a tough life. You've had cancer. You've battled challenges and difficulties and hardships and insecurities, a bad marriage. And yet through all of these things, you've, you've placed your focus, your emphasis upon me, and I'm so proud of you. Just listen to what it says. The sense that in the universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, 
to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is a part of the inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. He goes on to say, for glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the very heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking our entire lives will one day open at last. And really what he's emphasizing is this idea that all of us, to some degree, I mean, if you think of it this way, if promotion, this concept of being elevated, promoted, or recognized, or acknowledged, uh, is also attached to this concept of fame or glory, our number one desire is of Western cultures, we want to be famous. You know that, you know that, that recently they've done all these polls and asking like grade school kids, what's the number one thing you want to do when you get older? Like they expect them to be like, I want to be an astronaut or a president or, you know, write a symphony or whatever. They're like, you know what, the other thing I want to do is I want to be famous. You know why? Because ever since young age, they've been trained to live with a cell phone in their hand that shows them nothing but YouTube stars and influencers and like, man, they have a life. I want that. But that's not, I would, I would say that that is not a bad thing to want fame. But the question is where are they getting fame from? Is what C.S. Lewis is saying. Glory. Either we're going to anchor it in something that's fading, or we're going to anchor it in the God that never fades. Daniel knew what story he lived in. He anchored the sum total of his life in the glory that was to come, and therefore he was able to live in the world, and you receive promotion, if you would. This is what we're invited into, is to anchor our lives in the story of the gospel, the good news that says even though we are broken people, and we've done things that are shameful, we have a God that promotes us to glory, not based upon our own account, not based upon what we've done, not based upon our own merit, but upon Jesus alone. And he says, as C.S. Lewis would echo, he welcomes us into the heart of things, the life where God looks at us and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So I don't know how this hits you or you think about this, but I want to finish and just we're going to respond in song. We'll go to the table to eat the bread, drink the cup. We'll have some people that will be up in front to pray with you, to pray for you. You partake of the bread and sing. So why don't we all stand and as you stand, what I'd like to do is I would just like to take a moment, 15 seconds, 30 seconds of just silence. And in this moment, what I'd love for you to do is just to ask God, God, are there, are there things you want to speak to me? What are those areas in my life right now that you are wanting to address me on? What are those areas that you want to heal in me? Those areas where maybe you've been filled with anxiety because you feel like you deserve something you've not gotten yet. So a hope that's been delayed, or a longing that's been put off, or an expectation that you've not been yet given, and it's created a sense of entitlement, anxiety, and frustration, maybe even jealousy and bitterness. These are toxic to your soul, because Jesus loves you and invites you to lay those down in front of him. So I want you to just think about them. And just between you and God right now, just lay them at his feet, and then we'll sing We'll respond. We'll have some people off, or off to the side of the cross to pray with you. People that will be handing out communion will make their way up right now as well. And we'll just be available to, to serve you, to minister to you. So think of that as what this time is about. So just pause. Take 15 seconds.